introduce our guest presenter for the day. Uh, we're awfully pleased to have Sandra and Dan Ellis with us uh, and Professor Stephen Lagowski. Sandra. I don't think I can do that. Can you hear me without the mic? Okay. Well, well thank you very much. Is it on? I'm technologically challenged. No, it was Mark. Thanks. <laughs> Can you hear me now? Okay. I'll talk more quietly then. Okay. Um, first of all, thank you very much, Sandra, um, for your kind words and also for all of your thoughtful organizational efforts. Uh, my wife, Lorraine, uh, and I are uh, always feel privileged to be able to count both you and Dan as our dear friends. Um, also, I need to tell you I have a personal reason for being especially delighted uh, to be here at Holy Communion. And that is, and some of you might not be aware of this, uh, many years ago, back in the 1980s, uh, there was actually a preschool uh, in this building. And my two little girls had a wonderful, nurturing, stimulating experience at that preschool. So I, we have very happy memories of that. I think, though, that this is only about the second time that I've set foot in the building since then, and the first time was also for a happy occasion, and that was to celebrate uh, the 90th birthday of the wonderful Mary Allen, whom it was a treat to be able to see again today. So. <laughs> um, I'm here for a different purpose today. Uh, I've been asked to drone on for about 35 to 45 minutes on the subject of immigration. Uh, and then after that, we'll have time, hopefully, for uh, your questions, comments, um, tomatoes, any other airborne produce you brought with you, uh, and that sort of thing. Um, but as everybody here, I think, is aware, we are in the midst of an epic legal and political battle over immigration. There are many people who would say 
This is really nothing less than a battle for the soul of our nation, and I don't think that's uh, over-dramatizing it. But before I can um, talk about that debate, uh, I first have to um, give you a little bit of information about our current immigration laws, what we now do, who gets in, who doesn't get in, and so forth. Uh, so first, a general comment. Uh, until 1875, uh, the United States had basically open borders. There were no federal restrictions whatsoever on who could come into the country, uh, with the single exception of a two-year uh, provision that uh, was very innocuous and disappeared quite quickly. Uh, however, many of the individual states did have their own immigration uh, restrictions. Um, but in 1921, uh, or I should say actually, before, even before 1921, Congress began enacting restrictions. The, the most controversial came in 1875, when the U.S. Congress passed a number of restrictions on the entry of Chinese immigrants in particular. After that, these exclusions were expanded to include uh, paupers, uh, criminals, um, prostitutes, uh, people who they thought would be a public charge, uh, anybody who was deemed, quote, insane, the mentally retarded, and a number of other groups. But the really big deal came in 1921, when Congress, for the first time, uh, enacted numerical restrictions on immigration. And what made those restrictions all the more controversial was the fact that there was a different numerical limit for every source country. And furthermore, and there's no historical dispute about this, those, the formulas that determined how many people could come in from any given country were purposely designed so as to minimize the number of those who could enter from three places. Uh, East Asia, not just China, but Japan and Korea as well. Uh, South, uh, Southern Europe, mainly Italians and Greeks, and Eastern Europe, mainly Jews and Slavs. Uh, Congress abolished the national origins quota system in 1965, but we do still have per country limits, as I'll explain in a moment. Um, that brings us up to 2018. A lot more to talk about in terms of history, uh, but with limited time, I'll jump right up to the present. Um, the main statute that governs immigration today uh, is the Immigration and Nationality Act. It was passed in 1952 during the height of the Cold War, uh, but it has been amended well over a hundred times. It bears little resemblance now to its original form. Uh, this has grown into this hideous 600-page uh, single-spaced uh, monster uh, that is replete with ambiguities and contradictions and all these weird anomalies and so on. This is supplemented by thousands of pages of federal regulations, uh, judicial precedent decisions, uh, informal government policy memos, and so on, uh, to the point where almost nobody today is an immigration generalist. Almost everybody who does immigration today is a sub-specialist. Uh, but it has gotten fiendishly complicated. I'm going to try to do uh, in about 10 minutes what it usually takes me 42 class hours uh, to teach law students, which I guess tells you something about law students, but I'll do my best. Um, part of immigration law, I think probably the most central part, is actually citizenship law. Uh, who gets to be a citizen? Um, this is critically important for at least two reasons. One is that if you are a citizen of any country, then under international law, you have the absolute right uh, to leave your country and re-enter it at any time, and you are immune from all the immigration laws. Uh, if you are a U.S. citizen, for example, uh, you can leave the country, come back any time you want, and you can never be deported, no matter how repulsive you might personally be. You cannot be deported if you're a U.S. citizen. Uh, there's a second reason citizenship is important, and that is that if you are a U.S. citizen, then the law gives you certain opportunities to bring in uh, very close members of your immediate family. Uh, so the question becomes, so who gets to be a U.S. citizen? 
Well, um, around the world there are two uh, venerable principles that bestow citizenship on a person automatically at the moment of birth. And I know these principles are venerable because they have Latin names. One of them is called jus soli, that's spelled S-O-L-I. Uh, uh, this is a principle that originated in the English feudal system uh, where land ownership was considered especially critical. And the idea behind jus soli is that you automatically become a citizen at the moment of birth uh, uh, of the territory in which you were born. The other uh, venerable principle is use sanguinis. This means right of the land. Uh, and the idea here is that under certain circumstances, uh, you can inherit, at the moment of birth again, the citizenship of one or both of your parents. This principle originated mainly on the European continent. Uh, today, as a practical matter, uh, there, are very, there are probably no countries at all that adopt uh, really pure versions of either of these two principles. As a practical matter, what we have in most countries, including the U.S., is some combination of modified versions uh, of these two principles. Uh, under U.S. law, however, we do have an almost pure version of use solely. Uh, under our Constitution, anybody born in the U.S., with a couple of very, very narrow exceptions, automatically becomes a U.S. citizen. This was not always part of our law. Uh, it actually became part of the Constitution only after the Civil War. Um, before that, uh, we had the Dred Scott decision that many of you are familiar with, where the U.S. Supreme Court infam infamously held uh, that African-American slaves, whether uh, still enslaved or, or free, and their descendants uh, would not acquire U.S. citizenship by virtue of birth in the United States. After the Civil War, uh, we passed the 14th Amendment, one part of which now overrules the Dred Scott case, and so that's how that came about. Um, we do still have a use sanguinis law. Uh, under certain circumstances, uh, your children, if you are a U.S. citizen, will become U.S. citizens at birth. My own daughter uh, was born in England and acquired U.S. citizenship in that way. And the third common way to acquire citizenship is not at birth, it's later in life, and that's if you are admitted to the U.S. as a lawful permanent resident. These are the folks who hold so-called green cards. And then after a certain number of years, usually five, sometimes sooner, uh, you can apply for naturalization. Um, you should also be aware, and I can go into detail on this in the Q&A if you would like, that even if you're a U.S. citizen, there are ways to lose your U.S. citizenship, even involuntarily. We can talk about that as well. Um, the next principle, the first principle to be aware of in immigration law after citizenship, I think, uh, is this. And here there is a myth that I really need to dispel. Many people are under the understandable impression that as long as there's nothing affirmatively wrong with you and you're willing to wait your turn in line, then you can immigrate to the United States. That is not our law. Um, what our law says is that in order to immigrate, you have to affirmatively fit yourself with a one of a few very specific categories that Congress has created. Uh, the main four categories of people whom we admit today as immigrants are the following. First, uh, there are people who are admitted because uh, they want to reunite with certain very close family members. They are U.S. citizens, and they want to reunite with certain very close family members who are either U.S. citizens or, in some cases, other lawful permanent residents. That, in fact, is the majority of our legal immigration. The second major category is people who are admitted because they have certain occupational credentials that are needed in the U.S. labor force. 
A third major category, but much smaller than the other two, uh, is the so-called visa lottery. This is a lottery that is open only to people who come from certain countries that in the past five years uh, have sent relatively few immigrants to the United States. And the fourth category is refugees. Uh, there are also a, a handful of uh, very tiny miscellaneous categories, but those are the main four. If you do not fall within one of those categories, then, no matter how wonderful you might be, you cannot immigrate to the United States, period. No exceptions. The reason I'm giving this point so much emphasis is that in the debates over illegal immigration, it's very common to hear people say things like, you know, these undocumented folks, or often there will be worse names, uh, should go home and apply through regular legal channels and wait their turn in line like everybody else. And often that's followed with something like, uh, just as my grandparents did, they came in the right way. You'll often hear that. Um, what I hope is clear from the description I just gave is that for the vast majority of our undocumented population, it's not a question of being willing to apply through regular channels and waiting your turn in line. The problem they face is that under our current law, there simply is no line for them to wait in. So that's a big part of it. Um, secondly, let's assume you fall within one of these affirmative qualifications for, for admission. In addition to that, you have to show that you do not fall within any of a long list of disqualifications. Um, those disqualifications span about 20 pages of single-space print uh, in the statute, and they cover grounds that are probably not surprising. It's mostly things like your criminal history, uh, you're a national security threat, you're not going to be able to support yourself financially, um, you're a threat to public health because of a disease, um, or, or you have um, engaged in some type of immigration system itself, re related misconduct, you don't have the proper documents, and so on. And finally, let's assume you meet one of these affirmative qualifications and you don't fall within any of these disqualifying grounds. There are also, as I mentioned a moment ago, uh, numerical limits on immigration. We no longer have a different limit for every country, but we have two other kinds of limits. Uh, one is there is a limit to how many people are allowed to come in in a given year in any one of these particular categories. Secondly, there is a limit to how many people can come in in a given year in a given category from any one country. It's just that that per country limit is now uniform for all countries of the world. It doesn't vary uh, from country uh, to country. Uh, the practical consequence of these uh, various numerical limits is that we have waiting times that for most categories of immigrants uh, can now uh, add up to several years, in some cases more than 20 years uh, of a wait, depending on which category and which country you happen to come from. Um, so that's the admission of immigrants. Um, in addition to that, these are, by immigrants, I mean people who are coming here for permanent residence. They hold the so-called green cards. In addition to that, uh, of course, our law admits people on a temporary basis. Uh, there are lots of categories of these so-called non-immigrants. And they include familiar examples like students, foreign students, uh, tourists, business visitors, temporary workers, uh, diplomats, uh, foreign journalists, uh, members of airline crews, um, people just passing through in transit, uh, and so on. Uh, there are lots, there's a long list of those kinds of categories. So all of this has to do with who gets admitted to the United States. The flip side of admission is expulsion or deportation. How can you get deported? And I'm going to save that for later because there's more detail that I need to give you on deportation. And the last big item of U.S. immigration law is refugee and asylum law. Um, I should explain here that the U.S. really has uh, two separate refugee-type 
programs. Um, one of them is for overseas refugees. These are people who are typically in UN-sponsored camps in third world countries overseas, or perhaps they're even at large in third countries. They've escaped from the countries where they will be persecuted, and they've managed to get safe haven somewhere else. And the U.S., uh, like most countries in the world, I shouldn't say like most, like many countries in the world, has a program for admitting a certain number of these folks uh, every year. The other program is what is commonly referred to as asylum. This is for people who somehow manage one way or the other on their own to make it to U.S. territory, either the border or the interior, and apply for protection uh, once they are here. Under either of these programs, in order to qualify, you have to show that you meet the statutory definition, the technical legal definition, of the word refugee. That definition is narrower than most people would assume. In order to qualify as a refugee, uh, you have to show that you have a well-founded fear, well-founded has been interpreted by the courts to be a reasonable, objective fear, fact-based, that if you are returned to your country of origin, you will be persecuted. And persecution requires something more than harm. It even requires something more than discrimination. It has to be fairly severe. But not just any persecution will do. You have to show that the persecution you fear will be because of one of five specific things. Your race, your religion, your nationality, your political opinion, uh, or your membership in what the law calls a particular social group, which I'll come back to in a moment. If you don't fall within one of these five groups, you can't qualify. So notice how limited that definition is. First of all, you have to be persecuted. Uh, it's not enough that the harm you fear is that you're going to be caught up in the crossfire of a civil war, for example, or other armed conflict. It's not enough that your life is in danger because of a natural disaster like an earthquake uh, or a hurricane. You have to show that the harm you fear is persecution and that it will be on one of those five grounds. Before I go further, Again, those five grounds are race, religion, nationality, political opinion, and particular social group. Can anybody think of any other category that you might have expected to see on that list, but which isn't there? Feel free to shout it out. Uh, 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 your sexual orientation is not in that list, but even more fundamentally than that, if you think about our civil rights laws, gender is not on that list. And what that means as a practical matter is that if you are a woman or a girl who is fleeing from even horrific domestic violence uh, or gang rape at the hands of criminal gangs uh, or uh, gang rape in wartime, which happens often, or you're fearing honor killing because you have transgressed uh, the social norms of the particular country of origin, or any of these reasons, or sometimes if you're fleeing what is often referred to as female genital cutting, um, you can't simply say, I was persecuted because of my gender. You have to find some other indirect legal argument, and that's where a particular social group comes in. The problem with particular social group is that the Board of Immigration Appeals, which is the highest administrative tribunal to pass on deportation and asylum cases, uh, over the years has invented various requirements you have to meet that are very hard to meet. And those requirements were recently made even more difficult by an opinion issued by Attorney General Jeff Sessions uh, in which he made the blanket announcement that henceforth uh, women and girls who are fleeing domestic violence, as well as anybody who is fleeing gang violence, will generally be ineligible for asylum in the United States. And as a result, asylum applications are now being denied uh, left and right. And we are sending women and girls back uh, to be beaten and to be raped uh, and sometimes uh, facing the risk of death. So this is a situation that I think uh, we need to fix. Um, 
I think that's about it for a summary of an overview of where we are now in immigration law. Let me turn now to a few very specific uh, hot issues that have arisen and that have been in the news um, lately. One of them is the question of, um, of uh, deportation priorities. Um, the Trump administration, as many of you are aware, has uh, announced and implemented uh, a policy known as zero tolerance. Um, and here's the background. Uh, in the last couple of decades, uh, the amount of money we've been spending on immigration enforcement has really skyrocketed. Just a couple of numbers I'll throw out. Uh, the amount we spend on the, um, on the Border Patrol has uh, multiplied by a factor of 14 since 1990. Uh, the size of the um, ICE Interior Enforcement Unit uh, has tripled. Uh, since 2004. So we're spending a lot of money. But despite these massive resources, it is still the case that even still, uh, any administration will have enough money and enough resources to go after at most maybe 4% of the entire undocumented population. And many people would say even 4% is a stretch. So that means that somewhere along the line, somebody has to set enforcement priorities. Well, we've seen two different philosophies on this matter. Um, President Obama's view uh, was, uh, was that um, we should prioritize certain groups, uh, including people who have serious criminal histories, we should prioritize the removal certainly of anybody who is a threat to national security. Uh, he also prioritized the removal of people who were caught at the border while in the process of attempting to enter illegally. And another high priority was people caught even in the interior who had been in the U.S. only a very short time. But prioritizing some groups means with limited resources that you have to deprioritize other groups. So he said, let's deprioritize the removal of people whose removal would tear up a family, especially if that family also had US citizens in it, which is often the case. Uh, and secondly, let's deprioritize the removal of anybody who's been here a long, long time and has lived peacefully and productively in the US for that period of time. The Trump administration has a different philosophy about priorities. Um, in theory, uh, President Trump has embraced some of the same priorities, especially the removal of criminal offenders. But in practice, he has rendered those priorities meaningless. And the way he's done that is to tell every Border Patrol agent and every ICE agent that they should go after anybody they encounter whom they suspect might be undocumented. Um, I'm, going to un I'm going to editorialize a little bit here, more explicitly than I was before, I guess. Um, and tell you why I find this absence of priorities so concerning. There are many, many uh, reasons. Uh, first of all, when you leave these priority decisions in the hands of individual ICE officers and individual Border Patrol officers, excuse me, um, I find it hard enough to move paper with two hands, so excuse the delay. Um, you are just about obliterating any possibility of even the remote amount of consistency. Today, as a practical matter, whether you are going to be deported depends more than anything else on which officer you happen to encounter in the field uh, and on which prosecutor's desk your file happens to land on. Uh, secondly, I think the setting of priorities is an extremely important policy decision. And in a democracy, we rightly expect policy decisions to be made by agency leadership or even higher rather than by the rank and file because there's only leadership that can be held politically accountable. Um, a third practical concern is that 
um, the zero tolerance policy has exacerbated um, massive backlogs in the immigration courts. It's already um, not at all unusual for someone to wait four or five years for a removal hearing, sometimes all the time uh, being in detention while awaiting that hearing. Um, in addition to that, zero tolerance doesn't just mean we're going to deport everyone we find. Well, that's great. Now I just have to be sure not to knock it over. <laughs> okay. um, in addition to deportation, what zero tolerance also encompasses is, at least for every adult who is apprehended, we're going to bring criminal charges and make that person serve a criminal sentence before deporting the person. And by the way, keep the person in prison while, we're, while he or she is awaiting those criminal uh, charges. And what that has meant uh, is that it has drawn resources away. Can you hear me, by the way? Is this coming uh, It has drawn resources away from the uh, prosecutorial ability to go after what I would have thought were much more serious border crimes like human trafficking, drug trafficking, weapons trafficking, and so on. And prosecutors simply have less time to, to go after those criminals. But there's a fourth reason that bothers me personally the most, and that is that this policy of allowing ICE and Border Patrol officers to decide on their own individually what they think our country's enforcement priorities ought to be, this policy has led to some unspeakably cruel results. Now, I want to talk a little bit about the case of Rosa Maria Hernandez. Uh, you might not recognize her name, but some of you have read about her in the papers. Um, she and her family are undocumented. Um, Rosa Maria was brought to the U.S. by her parents when she was a three-month-old baby. Uh, she has cerebral palsy from birth. She's also developmentally disabled. The family has been here about 10 years now, so she's 10 years old, and uh, she has the cognitive development of roughly a five to six-year-old child. On top of all this, um, one day she suffered a gallbladder attack that required emergency surgery. Her parents could not bring her to the hospital because in order to get there, the only route to the hospital from where they live required them to pass through a Border Patrol checkpoint. And the parents knew as soon as we go through this checkpoint, we're going to be picked up and deported. Um, but they were lucky enough to be able to find another ride. However, when they got to the checkpoint and the Border Patrol agents understandably asked Rosa Maria for her papers, uh, of course she didn't have any. Um, but the driver explained, we have to get to a hospital, um, she needs emergency surgery. They nonetheless held up the car for 30 minutes, all the time pressuring them uh, to go back to go to Mexico and try to find emergency surgery there. Uh, the driver absolutely refused. There was a standoff, and eventually the Border Patrol let her go. But they accompanied uh, the car to the hospital. They stayed at the hospital throughout the emergency surgery. Uh, she was um, uh, kept in the hospital overnight. And when she was discharged the following morning, the moment she stepped out of the room, uh, the four armed Border Patrol agents who had been there the entire time immediately arrested her and carted her off to a detention facility, a jail, hundreds of miles away from her parents. Now, by the way, this is utterly illegal because under a court-ordered settlement from many years ago, uh, when an unaccompanied, or sorry, when a child who is undocumented is found in the United States and is awaiting removal proceedings, the government is required to place that person in the custody of her parents if they are available and if there is nothing unsuitable about them. And that's true even if the parents are undocumented. 
for reasons that the administration still has not explained, they did not do that uh, in this case. Instead, they carted her off, uh, confused in physical pain and with cerebral palsy, uh, hundreds of miles from her parents. Eventually, luckily, a reporter found out about this, and there was such a national uproar that DHS, Homeland Security, eventually relented and uh, allowed her to rejoin her parents. So she's home now. But she's still not home free because they still will not say whether they plan to deport Rosa Maria and her parents. So by the way, just in case you think this is an isolated example that I'm picking on, uh, there are so many uh, other examples. Uh, there was a recent case of a woman who has been in the U.S. for 24 years, has led an exemplary life here in the U.S. She has four U.S. citizen children, one of whom has Down syndrome and who depends on her uh, for his daily needs. Uh, they decided to go after her, and I believe she has now already been deported, leaving her children uh, utterly distraught. Um, the only reason uh, we know about these cases is that they happen to be reported. We don't know how many unreported cases like this there are. I can tell you that just because of my own specific work, uh, I'm aware of many, many cases like this because I'm on a listserv in which lawyers uh, exchange stories about their cases, uh, and I talk to immigration lawyers and they talk about them. Uh, but I think this is what inevitably will happen when you tell the Border Patrol and ICE, go after anybody you want. And I want to be clear that this is not meant to be a condemnation of the entire Border Patrol, because I don't doubt that many Border Patrol officers, if not most, uh, do try to fulfill their functions uh, with professionalism and common sense in a handful of cases, maybe even with a dose of humanity. Um, but there are so many who don't. And these policies enable those renegade officers to do uh, these sorts of things. Um, the zero tolerance policy has also given rise to uh, a second uh, issue, which you all heard about, and that is the family separation policy. Um, we all know there are many thousands of people arriving in the U.S. at our southern border from Central America, generally from uh, three countries, Guatemala, El Salvador, and Honduras, although I would not be surprised if Nicaragua soon joins that list because there's been endemic violence there, maybe even for the south in Venezuela, hard to say. But anyway, that's where they're coming. The vast majority are fearing either domestic violence or gang violence, more of the latter. Um, most of the people arriving are either unaccompanied children or children arriving with one or both of their parents. Uh, the boys who are arriving are typically kids who were recruited uh, by violent gangs in one of those countries and who, to their credit, had the courage and the character to stand up to the gangs and say, no, we are not going to join you, uh, but who knew that as a result of that decision, they would be putting their lives in danger if they were returned. Uh, perhaps even more horrifically, um, many of the girls who are arriving uh, are either the sisters or the boyfriends of those boys and who fear gang rape if they are returned in reprisal for their brothers or their boyfriends um, not uh, being willing to join the gangs. So this is a very, very serious uh, situation. Um, the way the family separation policy works for these folks uh, is that uh, the children were, at least, taken away from the parents and put in a separate detention facility, a jail. Uh, then criminal charges are brought against the parents, and based on those criminal charges, the government has a legal reason uh, to put the parents in, a, in an adult jail, often hundreds of miles away, while they are awaiting their criminal trials. And because these are adult jails, the government, the government has been saying, we just can't reunify these families because we can't put these children in an adult jail, as if there were no alternative of allowing the family to be released on bond uh, in proper cases. Uh, so that's been a really tough uh, situation. Um, 
The other aspect of this um, is that um, in addition to separating the children, the government failed to keep adequate records of which children matched which parents. Uh, so eventually this gets to court, uh, and a federal judge, who happened to be a conservative Republican, by the way, um, ordered an end to this cruel policy uh, and said, not only must you stop doing this, but you'd better reunify uh, the parents and children whom you have already separated. That proved very hard to do because, again, the government didn't bother to keep adequate records of which kids go with which parents. Many of these children are toddlers. Uh, any, all of you who have children know that uh, for a small child, often that child doesn't even know his or her parents' names. We're just mommy and daddy, the little toddlers. Uh, so it became very hard. They didn't even bother to put bracelets on the kids uh, that might have sought to uh, help to identify them later. Uh, compounding that is the fact that the government then deported many of these parents without their children. It has come out in recent weeks that the reason the parents even accepted deportation in the first place, rather than stay here to pursue their asylum claims, as was their legal right, is that the government, the ICE agents, had threatened them that if they do that, they will never see their children again. So hundreds of parents back in Central America, most of them have now been located, but some have not. The government, despite the court order, has made almost no effort to try to reunify the parents. Their argument has been, well, the ACLU brought this litigation, so they should be responsible for tracking down the parents and finding which kids belong to them. The court would have none of that. He said, no. The judge said, no, no. You separated them. You compounded the problem by not even bothering to keep records. You find them. Um, I've been talking with Lee Gallant, who was the main attorney for the ACLU in this case, and what Lee has said is that despite this court order, the government is still doing practically nothing. Uh, so the ACLU has taken it upon itself voluntarily uh, with the generous help of a New York law firm, Paul Weiss, uh, to trap down the parents. Unfortunately, though, because the parents are never going to get asylum in the U.S., they've had to make the worst choice a parent could ever have to make, either bring the children back home to re reunite with them, knowing that if the children come home, their lives will be in danger, or give up the kids allow the children to remain in the United States, hopefully after adoption by a good family. Uh, so this has been a very painful uh, process for many people. Um, and that process is still ongoing. There's still no uh, complete end in sight. Third issue is uh, something you've probably also heard of called DACA, D-A-C-A. Uh, it stands for Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals. Uh, here's the background. President Obama announced this in 2012. Um, this program allowed certain I guess I need, to, I'm sorry, I need to back up one historical step. Uh, you might have heard of the DREAM Act. This is a bill that has been uh, introduced in Congress in many different forms for many years. What the DREAM Act would do if enacted is say, um, if you're undocumented, but you were brought here as a child, and you have lived here since some specified past fixed date, and you meet a bunch of other requirements, including educational requirements, no criminal background, et cetera, then, um, we will put you on a long path towards lawful permanent residence and ultimately citizenship. But Congress has not been willing to pass the DREAM Act. President Obama got tired of waiting. And so in 2012, he announced this program called DACA. Now, DACA doesn't go nearly as far as the DREAM Act could go. Uh, President Obama understood that he had no power to do what the DREAM Act would do, which is give people a permanent legal status and ultimately citizenship. But what the government can do, and has done for many decades, uh, and what President Obama did with DACA is to say, we'll still give you this remedy on an individual case basis called deferred action. 
and I'll tell you a little bit about deferred action. I'll just mention as an aside uh, that this became uh, much better known among immigration lawyers in the 1970s as a result of a little-known story involving John Lennon and Yoko Ono. Um, but that's just a teaser. I'll tell you about the story in the Q&A if you want to hear it. Um, so what does deferred action do? If you get deferred action, uh, you get a temporary reprieve from removal, uh, typically for a fixed period of time. In the case of DACA, that period is two years, although you can apply for renewals of it in two-year uh, increments. Uh, in order to, and in addition to that, under a regulation that was actually issued by the Reagan administration, and which has been in frequent and continuous use ever since, uh, once you receive deferred action, you have the right to apply for a temporary work permit so that you can get by during the time in which you have deferred action status. In order to get DACA, uh, you apply individually, you send in uh, at the time, $465 as an administrative processing fee. Uh, you have to show that you've been in the U.S. since June 15, 2007, which is now 11 years. In practice, the vast majority have been here more than 20 years now. Um, you also have to show that uh, you have no criminal record, etc. You were brought here when you were 15 years of age or younger. You're now between ages 15 and 31, and you meet a bunch of other requirements as well. If you show all that, then there is the discretion to grant you deferred action. Uh, to date, about 800,000 young people have received deferred action. Just as a personal aside, I'll tell you that uh, I had the privilege of serving as chief counsel of USCIS, which is the agency that, among other things, implements deferred action. Uh, at the time, we rolled it out. And I can tell you that when I had the pleasure of announcing this program to the more than 200 attorneys in my office, uh, even among attorneys, there was not a dry eye uh, in the house. Uh, we were all just picturing, uh, literally, we were picturing tears of joy from uh, immigrant households uh, around the country, uh, as your priest personally knows. Um, so it was a wonderful program. However, this past September, uh, a year ago September, President Trump uh, terminated DACA. Uh, his stated reason for terminating it was that in the opinion of uh, the Attorney General Jeff Sessions, DACA is illegal. And in fairness to the administration, there was a federal judge in Brownsville, Texas, uh, who also thought that it was uh, illegal for failure to meet certain procedural uh, requirements. Um, so he terminated it. Uh, many organizations brought lawsuits all over the country. Uh, three different federal district courts uh, issued what are called preliminary injunctions against the termination of DACA. Preliminary injunction is an injunction uh, that basically usually just stays in place until the case can be finally decided, at which point the judge will decide whether to issue a permanent injunction. Uh, the terms of the preliminary injunction were the administration must continue to process renewal applications of DACA, not necessarily first-time applications, but at least renewals. Uh, the Supreme Court uh, did not intervene uh, in the interim, and as a result, uh, people can still today apply for renewals of their DACA applications, uh, but not for initial grants of DACA. Um, I, I would predict that this case eventually is headed for the Supreme Court. And by the way, I, I would urge you in all due humility to pay very careful attention to my predictions because they are truly remarkable. Um, I, I don't need to brag, but I was actually one of the very first people to predict that in 1972, Ed Muskie would be elected president. So, <laughs> So listen carefully to my projections and then bet on exactly the opposite would be my advice. Um, there are, uh, DACA is controversial, I, I can't deny that. My own view is that um, the legal arguments in support of DACA are compelling. I, I just can't think of any serious legal, legal defects in it. Um, and I don't even think there's room for reasonable debate on the legality of it. 
but I must admit um, that there is a legitimate policy debate about whether it is a good idea. I personally feel very strongly that it is. And so I want to give you just a little um, insight into what the Obama administration was thinking as to why it enacted DACA, apart from the political uh, considerations. The main thing, of course, was the humanitarian idea. Uh, you have people who have lived most of their lives in the U.S., they're brought here as children, nobody could hold these kids morally accountable for joining their parents in the United States. Um, and in addition, because they've lived here such a long time, most of these kids really know no other country. So those, those are the obvious humanitarian reasons. But beyond those, there were some practical reasons uh, as well. The starting assumption here is that um, the DACA population is here to stay. Um, they have been here many years, most of their lives. Uh, they have stayed through the worst economic recession since the Great Depression. Uh, they're not about to leave voluntarily now that the economy has been doing uh, better and better every year for the past seven or eight years. Uh, nor do even the most enforcement-minded among us really believe that we could somehow figure out how to locate, uh, let alone apprehend, arrest, uh, detain, prosecute, judge, and then physically remove uh, hundreds of thousands of people whose names and addresses we don't even know. So the reality is they are here to stay. That, that, that much is clear. The problem, though, is that right now, or at least before DACA, they were living in the shadows. Um, we didn't know their names. We didn't know their addresses. We didn't know their histories. Um, what, in order to get DACA, they have to come forward and supply all that information. They have to provide background. They have to provide fingerprints and other biographic information so that the FBI and the other intelligence and counterintelligence and, uh, and law enforcement agencies can do thorough background checks. Um, to do all this uh, requires them to come out of the open. And most people agree that having this population out in the open is healthier for everybody than having this permanent uh, underground uh, subculture. So that, that was a big part of it. Now, there are a lot of people who say, OK, fine, we understand why you're not going to go after these people and try to prosecute them. Um, but why do you have to grant them work permits, especially at a time when uh, there are still many Americans who are unemployed? Why would you give people who aren't even supposed to be here uh, an edge in applying for work and, and being able to um, be employed? And that's an understandable question, I think. Um, but the reality is this. These people are not only here permanently to stay. They will work. They have to in order to support themselves. But right now, because they don't have authorization to work, there are unscrupulous employers who know that they can hire these folks at extremely low, even exploitative wages. And that gives these employers an affirmative incentive to hire them over authorized US workers. Not only that, but when the employers do so, what they're actually doing is reducing the market wages for all authorized workers as well. Work permits eliminate both of those perverse incentives. So the hope was that through DACA, uh, we could give US employers one fewer reason to hire unauthorized workers over uh, US workers. Um, let me, uh, there are a couple of other um, uh, issues that I'll, I'll just speak of briefly. Uh, a hot issue has been what the president refers to as, quote, chain migration. Um, I want to talk about this. Uh, the image that he would like to cultivate is that when an immigrant comes to the United States, that person can bring in his or her siblings, who in turn will bring in their family members, who in turn will bring in their siblings, who will bring in their family members, and basically the admission of one immigrant will end up in the admission of hundreds of additional immigrants. There are two problems with that picture. Uh, one is that while there is such a thing as chain migration, it accounts for the tiniest, tiniest percentage of our illegal immigration because of the numerical limits on the admission of siblings in the first place. Uh, even siblings, and I don't consider them 
chain migration anyway, they're coming in directly. Um, but even the combination of siblings and their spouses and children uh, are limited to 6% of, uh, roughly 6% of entire uh, U.S. legal immigration per year, so it's a small number. But the second problem is more serious, and that is that the legislation that the president has proposed to take care of what he calls chain migration deals with, uh, makes, makes cuts far more radical than just chain migration. What he would do under this legislation is cut by about 50% the number of people who may come in under the entire family unification program uh, for reasons that have nothing whatsoever to do with chain migration. Uh, so this has a lot of people very worried. Um, a couple of other issues that I'll just uh, mention briefly as well, the travel ban. Uh, there are actually two different travel bans. Uh, one has pretty much expired by now. That was a ban on all refugees worldwide for a temporary period. Uh, the other was a ban on all other foreign nationals from a certain group of uh, specified countries. Um, the, uh, the, the, yeah, the specified countries. A couple things that I'll mention on that. Um, one is that um, because all of the original specified countries were Muslim-majority countries, in fact, every one of them had a population that was more than 90% Muslim, uh, there was a lot of feeling, especially given the president's rhetoric on Muslim immigration, uh, that this was the main impetus uh, for, for that. As a result, there were several court decisions that struck down the so-called Muslim ban. Uh, and um, the Supreme Court, uh, in a split decision, uh, ended up affirming uh, the decision of a lower court uh, that allowed the ban to continue. Uh, so it does continue to this day, although in a less and more modified form. The final issue is really refugees. Um, I mentioned earlier we have this overseas refugee program. Um, the president has the power under law to decide how many overseas refugees will admit in a single year. President Obama for fiscal year 2017 had set the limit at 110,000 given the Syrian crisis. Obama, uh, President Trump, upon taking office, immediately reduced it for the current, for the then current fiscal year to 45,000 and kept it at 45,000 for the following fiscal year, which ended just a few days ago. Uh, for the this, this coming fiscal year, he's, he's reduced it to 30,000. This is far and away the lowest it has ever been in the 38-year history of the Overseas Refugee Program, and these cuts come at a time when the, the displaced world population is at an all-time record high. Uh, so there's a great deal of concern among the uh, humanitarian organizations worldwide. Let me close by stating the obvious. Immigration excites passions, always has, always will. But I like to emphasize why people immigrate to this great country. Many people immigrate because they want to reunite with their husbands or their wives or their children or their parents, often after long periods of separation. Many people are coming simply because they want to have the kinds of life opportunities that we take for granted, but which they could never dream of for themselves or for their children in their countries of origin. And very sadly, many people are coming to escape persecution or torture or even death. Um, statistically, looking at the size of this group, I have to assume that some of you were born in other countries. Uh, if you were, you immigrated to the United States. But for those of you who were born here, like me, uh, I want to do an ex a quick experiment. I want to ask you to please um, close your eyes, either literally or figuratively, depending on how much you trust the person sitting next to you, <laughs> uh, and try to imagine uh, what it would be like if you were suddenly uprooted from the only country you've ever known. You're going to leave your neighbors behind, you leave your friends behind, you're going to leave many of your family behind, 
typically. Uh, in many cases, you don't know whether you will ever see these family members again. And you're going to travel, often alone, to a distant land where you most likely uh, can neither speak nor understand the language, and where you're entering a strange new environment with a strange new culture and a totally uncertain future. You have absolutely no idea what is going to become of you in this new life. You can open your eyes now. This is not a natural human impulse, and yet that is what so many of our fellow neighbors, authorized or unauthorized, have done. It took uncommon courage. It took uncommon initiative. But that's the stuff that immigrants and refugees are made of. And my view is that that is what has enabled them to so enrich our country, not just economically, but culturally, spiritually, and in so many other ways. And I know from my own experiences with immigrants and refugees that the vast majority of those who come here succeed uh, and turn out to be Americans who are proud of their country and grateful to the United States for giving, it, giving them a second chance in life. And I will stop with that. Thank you very much. Take just a minute for a question and answer. Um, I'm going to do the first question while you all gather your thoughts. And that is, um, there's a distinction between immigration courts and our federal court system. Um, I'm wondering about whether there's any chance or whether there's anything going on about that fifth category of credible threat for somebody who's escaping persecution in their home country, whether there's any line of jurisprudence that is coming forward to establish what that fifth category can it include gender and sexual orientation. Are there courts that are making those decisions? Where would that lie? Uh, it's amazing that you would ask me that question because those happen to be exactly the two issues that I'm working on at the moment. Um, it's very two separate questions. One is um, procedural question, what about these immigration courts as opposed to the usual federal courts? And the other is, what about adding gender or sexual orientation to the list of protected grounds? Um, with respect to the immigration courts, I have to give a fairly wonky explanation. The immigration courts consist of two different things, uh, all of which are within the Justice Department. Uh, one are um, courts presided over by people called immigration judges. These are the folks who normally decide deportation cases, uh, including cases in which people under threat of deportation apply for asylum. Uh, and then there is an appellate body called the Board of Immigration Appeals, which hears appeals from the immigration judge's decisions and also hands down precedent decisions that guide the fu future policies of immigration law and future interpretations. Um, the general rule is that if you are found to be deportable, the word now is technically removable, uh, by the Board of Immigration Appeals, you generally have the right to go to the general courts. It's actually the Court of Appeals, you skip over the district court, and you file what is called a petition for review. And that court then has the power to decide whether the BIA decided, interpreted the law correctly. However, there are huge exceptions now. You're not allowed to challenge any discretionary decision made in those proceedings, nor are you allowed to challenge your deportation at all in federal court if the reason you are being deported is that you are convicted of a criminal offense. Uh, so they are very, very limited. Um, you, you raised the question of what about the credible fear determinations. This also requires a little bit of explanation. Um, if you arrive at the United States border without papers, uh, or if you are suspected of um, making a fraudulent representation, uh, then you are put into what is called, and, and you wish to apply for asylum, you are put into what is called credible fear proceedings. This is an interview uh, conducted by uh, an asylum officer at the border, uh, and it's kind of a screening interview. Is there enough there in your case uh, 
uh, to warrant giving you a full asylum hearing on the merits. Uh, until recently, those credible fear determinations were almost always positive because the person usually could testify credibly enough that at least you should hear the person out before sending them back. Uh, but under the current administration, that has changed, and now credible fear determinations are being denied left and right. The other question you asked was, what about adding gender and sexual orientation to the list? It's understandable that they're not there now because uh, the language of the U.S. statutes, like that of most refugee statutes in other Western countries, uh, tracks the language of, a, of an international convention that was adopted in 1951 at a time when gender violence was really just not on the public radar. But now it's 2018, and given the women's marches and the Me Too movement, um, given the recent uh, controversy over the Kavanaugh nomination, uh, given the recent developments on the subject of sexual orientation, given all that, one would think that there might be a movement now. I'm actually working with a member of Congress in the hope of trying to pass a bill that would add gender to the list. The hope is that as a matter of political strategy, uh, we can get anyone who, any politician who would otherwise be opposed to it to have to say, no, you know, I'm really sorry, but even when we find women who are going to be beaten or raped or killed, yes, our policy should be to deliver them to their tormentors. We want to put people who hold that point of view in an uncomfortable position in the hope that the, view, that the bill can get votes from all the Democrats and enough Republicans to push it over the top and convince leadership to allow uh, people to vote on it, which um, Speaker Boehner would not allow the House to do on the matter of comprehensive immigration reform. So, sorry for the long-winded answer, but that's, that's the best I can do. Other questions? Yeah. Steve, uh, in your comments, you described uh, this wellspring of emotion from the attorneys with whom you work uh, at the announcement of the DACA program. Help us reconcile that very empathetic response with the lack of revolt from within uh, the career part of service and actions that permanently separate parents and their kids, I wouldn't have expected uh, a larger public protest. Yeah, did anybody hear the question? How can you reconcile the fact that so many attorneys were emotionally fulfilled when they heard about DACA with the fact that there really hasn't been any major uproar from those same attorneys now that family separation and other policies have been put into place? Um, very complicated. Um, psychology operating here. You know, when I went to DHS, all my career I'd been accustomed to being an immigrant advocate. DHS was considered the enemy. Even USCIS, which is purely a service agency, as opposed to ICE and Customs and Border Protection, which are enforcement agencies, was often, often thought of as a very conservative, sometimes even anti-immigrant organization. So when I first got there, I don't know how far back all of you go, but uh, I felt as if I were infiltrating the headquarters of Thrush. <laughs> there was a, to my surprise, the attorneys, at least in the office of chief counsel, I can't say this about all the career employees throughout the agency, but at least in the attorney's office, um, it was a smart and actually fairly reasonable group of attorneys. What I found, though, was that there was an instinctual negative reaction to a lot of progressive initiatives that I tried to push through and failed to, through my own ineptitude, I guess. Um, but I don't think it was because of racism in most cases or because of... Uh, an anti-immigrant xenophobia. What I really discovered for the first time was that there is this extraordinarily intense institutional loyalty. Anytime anybody criticizes any unit of DHS, the immediate instinct is to pull back. And to my amazement, some of the attorneys who pushed back against any 
um, progressive challenges to their policies are now some of the most vociferous internally in resisting some of the current initiatives. Um, when people challenge DHS, they just want to pull back. And I th think that was what happened. The other important distinction, of course, is between career employees uh, and the political appointees. I was a political appointee, um, but many of the career employees um, have a combination of reverence for the political appointees and fear of them uh, on the one hand, but also uh, a kind of contemptuousness uh, toward us. Uh, they know that they're going to be here long after a, a new administration comes in, and um, a lot of times they weather the storm. And to my amazement, um, the, even the head of USCIS, a man who I would describe as an extremely strong leader, uh, one who did not like a lot of criticism, uh, even he could do nothing to change the culture on the ground. Uh, he would try to rein in some of the Border Patrol officers. No way that could be done. Rein in some of the more conservative adjudicators. It just couldn't be done. So that's, that's my explanation. Yep, Sandra? What effect do you think Kavanaugh on the Supreme Court is going to have on immigration cases that come or they decide not to take? What's going to be the effect? Yeah, the question is uh, what effect is Justice Kavanaugh likely to have on immigration case law. Uh, he doesn't have a long track record on immigration cases. There haven't been that many in the D.C. circuit where he once was. Uh, however, um, immediately upon arriving at the court, uh, the court happens to be hearing oral arguments in a fairly major immigration case. Um, the question in that case is, what do you do with people who have been convicted of crimes decades ago, but who come to the attention of the immigration authorities now? Um, the law is clear that they're still subject to deportation. Uh, the question, though, is do you have to detain them? In most cases, detention pending removal proceedings, this is a big deal issue because people can be in detention for years. Uh, detention normally is discretionary, and the two factors they're supposed to look at are is the person a flight risk or is the person a danger to the community? However, there are certain categories of cases uh, in which uh, detention is now mandatory by law. And one of them is, quote, when a person is uh, released from prison following a criminal conviction. The question before the court was, what do they mean by that? Do they mean, yes, you have to take the person into custody that moment or shortly thereafter? Or, do they really, or do they really, does when really mean if? If the person is released, then no matter how many decades later it is, you must take the person into custody. And the people challenging the policy were saying, this is not a case of mandatory detention, it's discretionary detention, and therefore you need to give the person a bond hearing before imprisoning him or her for many years awaiting deportation. That was the big issue. Um, Justice Kavanaugh weighed in on the uh, most conservative side of that issue. He even managed to get to the right of Justice Gorsuch, uh, who even was questioning whether that was what Congress meant. If that is an indicator, then immigrants are going to be in for some tough times. Sir. There's been some uh, news reports about people, military, who are non-citizens being deported even though they're serving in the U.S. military. What's yeah. the logic behind that? Yeah, I don't even hear the question. There are reports of military personnel being deported, deported even while in active service. Um, they're discharged first and then often deported because they're undocumented. Um, it's, it's two things going on here. One, the main thing is that um, there is a special statute uh, which allows a person who, has, who is serving or has served in the military uh, to become a naturalized U.S. citizen much sooner than would ordinarily be the case. And so that has attracted a lot of lawful permanent residents, 
that is green card holders, into the military. Um, but I think the government sees these people as potential voters once they become citizens. And so the strategy has been, let's get rid of them before they are able to obtain the U.S. citizenship. And so they've been honorably discharged. Um, and if they are undocumented, then proceedings are instituted. But if they're just lawful permanent residents, then they're still allowed to stay, it's just that they can't serve in the military. Yeah. I should add that many of these folks have special language skills uh, that are really useful to the military in counterintelligence. Uh, do we have time for one? Yeah. Okay, yeah. Uh, what can we do either here at Holy Communion or personally to, to help out? Um, well, a lot depends on what your goals are, right? Um, uh, there are th if you're on the pro-immigrant side uh, and would like to see a more humane policy, I think there are several things. I'm really glad you asked that question. Um, one is you can give money to um, uh, one of the local nonprofits that assists uh, asylum seekers and other people fleeing, for example, domestic violence. I want to put in a pitch here with a disclosure that I'll provide uh, for an organization called the MICA Project. It's M-I-C-A. If you were to go to mica-project.org, you'll learn about this organization. Wonderful group of attorneys, um, all of whom, by the way, were my former students, uh, some of my favorite students of all time. And what they do is uh, provide legal services, helping people who get asylum, to get asylum, and to get special visas based on domestic violence or other victims of crime, uh, to get their papers and avoid being sent back. Um, and they are always in need of funding. The more funding they have, the more people they can hire, and the more people they can help, because they have to turn lots of people away. So that's one thing. You can contribute to them, or to the um, International Institute for Refugees, which does wonderful uh, refugee resettlement work. Second thing you can do is uh, vote uh, for somebody who you think will be in line with whatever your own policy preferences are. Uh, the third thing you can do is flood your local uh, congressional offices and the DC offices of those same folks uh, with phone calls. And the way it typically works is that you don't need to go into a long song and dance. If you call your local congressperson and each of the, and the offices of each of your two senators and simply leave a message saying, I'm urging the senator or the representative to do X, you don't have to go into a long song and dance about why you think that's a good idea because the person at the other end of the phone is not even going to take that down. At the end of the day, they will simply give the member a tally, like 73 people called in saying they support DACA, uh, 20 people called in saying they don't. So the more you can beef up the numbers, uh, the more influence you actually have. You're welcome. Yeah. Uh, if you would help me thank Dr. Steve Rogan. Next week, we'll be back with the Adult Forum. Our stewardship committee will join us to talk about uh, stewardship and to take a walk through our budget for this year. We like to do a sort of moment of transparency. Uh, for those of you who haven't yet, um, in the, uh, uh, what is our, our lounge over here, um, you can find an envelope with your name on it, sorted by alphabetical by last name. Uh, that is the stewardship letter kicking off this year. There'll be another letter next week, but if you could pick those up before you leave today, uh, you'll save the church postage. Uh, thank you all so much, and we look forward to seeing you next week. <laughs>